This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Before you mash that fast forward button to move to the beginning of today's episode, I'd like to quickly tell you about some ways you can support the show and everything that I'm doing right now. You can support the show on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash Chase Thomas Writer. Again, just go on over to patreon.com slash Chase Thomas Writer. Become a patron for as little as $5 a month. Or you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave a rating and a review. It's incredibly important with the way iTunes works. So if you have a second, please leave a rating and or review and subscribe on iTunes. Uh, you can listen to the show on Spotify, TuneIn Radio, Stitcher, Google Play, and wherever else you get your podcasts, you can check out chasethomaspodcast.com. That is on my previous episode, a link to my newsletter, and all my articles that I've written. Uh, you can also follow me on Twitter at chase double underscore Thomas. You can like the Facebook page at facebook.com slash chase Thomas writer, or you can just tell a friend you found this independent sports podcast that they should check out too. Thank you for listening. You're all the best. And I think we've reached the point in this intro where my uncle Darren can play me in. All right, let's go. Chase Thomas podcast. The Chase Thomas podcast. Um, my nephew needs me to record. See, I hate. I already hate it. I hate it. All right, on the line right now, my good friend Scott Rafferty, back from his world tour uh, all across Europe. And um, thankfully, though, he was not in Bruges, as we discussed before we started recording, because that's where I really want to go. But then I found out that he actually spent most of his life in Belgium, and I'm just learning all kinds of great things about Scott um, tonight. So (laughs) it's a fun Wednesday, and uh, Scott has uh, recuperated, I hope, enough to do the podcast tonight and talk about basketball. Scott, how are you? I'm doing well, man. Thanks for having me back. I have uh, I, I've pretty much recuperated at this point. Although I will say we we got back from uh, from Belgium to London on a Saturday, and then the next day I had a basketball game for my league team, uh, and that was that was kind of rough. But I also think that kind of jumps out to my recovery. So I'm good now. Like ten days ten days removed from the trip, I'm good. But it's uh, yeah, I feel sometimes like you need a vacation from your vacation. <laughs> did your cats know you were gone? Oh, uh, they did. They they act up. I'm not gonna lie. They uh. Huh. They, do, they do some weird things. Usually, because we have a pet sitter that comes in and looks after them. Um, and okay. usually, usually for like the first five or six days, like nothing bad happens. And then by day mm-hmm. like six or seven after a week, um, they, they start to they start to let us know that they're not happy that we're gone. Um, I won't go into too much detail because it's not, it's not the prettiest thing. But yeah, they, they definitely let us know. Hmm. Okay. Because uh, I have some cat's takes that I might reveal at some point on this podcast. Yeah. But it's not tonight. <laughs> okay. That's fair. All right, but uh, I'm glad you made it back, and I'm glad uh, we're able to do this tonight, because yeah, as we're recording, the Washington Wizards are putting away the Toronto Raptors, so that, um, I, do, you don't know about this, but uh, basically, as long, I, I, I've gone, uh, maybe my hottest NBA take this postseason has been that um, I always thought the Raptors were going to lose to the Wizards in the first round, and I was, I'll, I'll admit, I was a little nervous after the first two games, but since... 
feeling great. Great first half tonight. Uh, Beal like only being down one point, and Beal only scoring like eight, and DeRozan not getting to line a bunch like he did in Game Four. And I don't know. I just. I, not having Fred Van Fleet is really obviously hurting that second unit in Toronto and just seeing how valuable guys are like that because this, I think, leads in nicely to one of your pieces that you wrote this week on the 76ers who have relied heavily on Ilyasova and Marco Bellinelli, who they got off the scrap heap after the Hawks bought both those guys out. And it really does pay to have a really good bench. And, you know, the biggest thing, though, can I say that was – really surprising is that i always trash the wizards bench and what ernie grumfell has done with that bench but they're right behind the sixers in the best plus minus um for benches in the playoffs right now sixers are number one and a lot of that has to do with marco bellinelli just hits ridiculous shots urson fits in super nicely at either the four or the five and just it, it all flows nicely the sixers are very nicely built right now they are. I think the the thing that stands out with me is like you, they picked up these guys basically off the scrap heap. They got them out of the bio market. Um, there are a lot of teams, including the Cavaliers, who could definitely use them right now. Like a couple shooters who can play different positions and space the floor and whatnot. Um, but like they they are mainly outside shooters. Ilyasova so can play the five. He can stretch teams out. Bellinelli's a two or a three. Um, but they're all just small basketball players who move the ball. Um, they cut and things like that. And when you're on a team with Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid. You want guys who can kind of take attention away from them, which they can do with their shooting, and then kind of make teams pay when they load up on them, which they do with their cuts and everything like that. Um, so they, I mean, they run some really beautiful stuff with the 76ers. Uh, there, there was one player I highlight, highlighted specifically in game one when they had Ben Simmons, who's basically their point guard, uh, posting up Dwayne Wade while Jed Yerick, their shooting guard, sets a down screen for their power forward, Darius Saris, to pop to the three-point line. And he's just like little things. Like, there aren't many teams in the NBA you could do that for. Um, yeah. But, you know, those, they just have so many skilled guys on their roster right now who are all playing big minutes, um, who any night can kind of go off like 20 points and give them that third scoring option that they need. Uh, and, it, you know, it, it kind of catapulted them to a level where I think we can talk about whether, whether or not they're actually like true contenders this season, but they're, into a, they're in a position where they could legitimately make it to Eastern Conference Finals and give a team, you know, a, a, like a good, a good run at that. I don't think another team makes sense coming out of the East at this point. I, I don't think they're contenders in the sense of can they beat the Rockets or the right. Warriors. I don't think that's a possibility. But uh, if I had to really just guess as to who's representing the East in the NBA Finals this year, I think right now it's still the Sixers. But so much of it, it's crazy that we're here. But um, we should have. It, it's kind of like the Jazz in the West a little bit, where we didn't look at just how good they were post Gobert's return. Because I think a lot of people were clouded by just uh, they're kind of eh, they were struggling to get in the playoffs. But I mean, the West from like three to nine was just super tight. But at the same time, like the Jazz have been awesome since Gobert's come back, and we know that they are a really awesome team when they have Gobert. We know that the Sixers are really, really hard to beat when they have Embiid, but they also improved a lot without him, and you have moments where the Jazz can survive without Gobert, and I kind of thought about that, where we kind of undervalued these two teams, and you also wrote about Donovan Mitchell, who I believe has some sort of beef with Ben Simmons. I think they're in some sort of race that has gotten both <laughs> fan bases a little riled up. I, I, I'm not 100% certain, but it seems like they are doing something. There's a sweaty, the, I was about to combine those two words, uh, a sweatshirt or a hoodie involved at some point, the definition of what a rookie is. All kinds of great, fun, rational conversations are being had between the two fan bases. But um, I do think that as I've watched more and more of the, the playoffs this year, it kind of remind they kind of remind me of each other where they are both super deep. They have a great five. 
They are they play a really fun brand of basketball. They have really exciting young players. They just play really good defense and they're teams that we should have like coming in been like, "Oh, they're playing really good basketball at the best time because the Sixers were obviously playing really good basketball. And you mentioned in the article that Ben Simmons, even after Embiid went down, he stepped up and he was almost averaging a triple-double uh, post-Embiid injury. And that was critical for them. And I wonder how much of that has propelled him to just be so good in the playoffs too, just that confidence of learning how to play without Embiid and survive without him. And uh, Saric and Ilyasova have just been so good playing at the five when they need to that i mean those offensive numbers are just explosive like i think one of the the stats that you pointed out in the piece is like i think there were 140 points per 100 possessions um on offense with uh i think it was sarge at the five um it was that all shooting lineup surrounding ben simmons reddick bellinelli um sarge and Ilyasova. i think is what the lineup was that's just torching teams mm-hmm. and it all works and it makes sense. And then you look at the jazz and you're like, Oh yeah, these all rotation, th- th- this is all going to work and they're going to be a problem. But they're unfortunately in a conference that features the Houston Rockets and uh, the golden state warriors. So it's not, they, they have a ceiling that they can't get past, but the Sixers don't. And uh, the sky's the limit for this year at the very least. Yeah. I think they, uh, I think the Sixers were number two in that racing after all star break. Um, and the jazz were actually number one. Um, and they both won, like, I think, I think the Jazz won 18 games after the All-Star and the, the 17-21 or something. Um, yeah. yeah, you're right. I mean, I, I think the, the, it's always hard to say, like, an injury is a blessing to this guy because you never want guys like Joel Embiid to get injured. And it's the same thing we're seeing with the Celtics this season with, uh, you know, Gordon Hayward and Kyrie Irving. Um, but it's also fascinating seeing the situations, like, what what other guys on the roster do to step up? Um, and as, as far as the Danny Sixers go, it's like, then I, they they really struggled um, this season whenever Joel Embiid was on the court, and even when in the regular season when Ben Simmons was on the court and Embiid was on the bench, um, then net rating wasn't very good. I don't have it right in front of me now, but I know I think it was negative. Um, yeah, and that completely flipped when when Joel Embiid went down. Ben Simmons stepped up. Obviously, having guys like Marco Bellinelli and Osama who kind of take some of the scoring burden off of Ben Simmons helped. Um, but putting him in that position and being like, hey, for eight ten games at the end of the season, like you're the number one option, you're going to carry us. Um, this is all on you. Also being in a situation where, like, hey, we're going to make the playoffs, so, like, you know, you don't have to worry about carrying us to the playoffs. You can kind of just kind of do your thing and see how it goes. Um, obviously, we carried that momentum into the playoffs. They won game one with Simmons and no Embiid. Um, they lost game two, but then Embiid comes back, and, you know, they win three straight games against the Heat, and they're looking, what, probably the best team in Eastern Conference right now, um, mm-hmm. which is crazy. I and mean, this is such a young team. You know, Ben Simmons is a rookie. Marco Fultz isn't even playing right now. Uh, and he's the number one pick last year, or, or this year. Uh, Jerome Beat is one of the best two-way players in the NBA. He's an all-star. Um, they're going to have so much cap space if someone to sign someone. Um, we've seen this situation before where it's like we, we just assume these teams are going to make run year after year and after year when they don't, um, which is why we shouldn't take everything that happens for granted with the 76th season. But like, based on what we've seen so far, it's like the sky's the limit for this team. Um, and it's going to be super exciting to see kind of where they go from here. It's so weird thinking about them five years from now because I could totally see two very, very different situations where one, they go to the finals this year and then injuries just derail them for the rest of yeah. and then like the rest of the five years and they never get back. I could see that. I think that's very plausible. Um I mean, we still have to see what happens with Fultz. We still have to see what happens with all well, the guys they signed the like this bench is gonna get reshuffled a little bit next year. And we'll see 
um, what happens there. But this year, it's incredibly valuable. I don't think Bellinelli and Ilyasova are going to be on this team next year. So we'll see what they do there. And um, Covington's kind of concerned me this postseason it doesn't seem like he's played that great but um when Ilyasova and Saric and that's it we haven't really talked about Saric where you you basically pin him as a guy who's a jack of all trades a master of none which is a great way of um describing him but it was also a major concern I think for a lot of us coming into this year when we're thinking about the roster construction and where he fits in the grand scheme of things because if he can't shoot it's hard to see a scenario where he can play with Ben Simmons and Covington and uh, Redick and Embiid on a really good lineup and he's gotten a lot better and he's shooting the ball really well and obviously he's shooting well from three this postseason like Redick's actually I think under 35 percent or he's shooting right around that in the yeah he's surprisingly he's been like that was three-point shooter on the in, in, in the playoffs which is great for them though because if JJ yeah. Redick str- you're like really struggling you know he's going to eventually get back to the mean and start hitting shots again and a lot of that I think has to do with like defenses are just tightening up and he's so reliant on getting off screens where Bellinelli as you had the best video shot of him uh this postseason (laughs) where he's just falling off his back foot and just launching this three that goes in and it's um Bellinelli is a good like bad shot maker and it's kind of like JR in a weird way but um more effective and uh it's working right now it seems like it's one of those uh, to go inside baseball here, like batting average balls in play situation where it's absurdly high. And you would think at some point that he's not going to get as lucky with some of these shots that he's hitting. But um, when Reddick's not hitting these shots and he's kind of struggling, it's really nice to have someone like Bellinelli off the bench who can kind of shoulder that load for Reddick until he gets back on track. So um, him and Saric and Ilyasova have just been great. And it's also another instance where math is kind of winning because the Sixers are shooting really well from three, and that's play, paying huge dividends, especially when you have unicorn like Embiid and Sim and uh, Simmons, who just doesn't shoot threes at all. So it's all really fascinating, but um, they're really fun to watch and really exciting. And I'm glad it's all coming together because Joel Embiid is a gift, and um, it's cool seeing Dario Saric kind of figure things out with this offense. Because I did feel kind of bad for him that he became kind of the afterthought. And if it's like if he can never develop, develop a three point shot for them, then I don't know where he fits, and you have to trade him and all that kind of stuff. But now, I think he's uh in their long term plans, or at least he probably should be. Yeah, he he, he is kind of a funky player because I, I think you're right. If if he's making his threes, um, his game opens up, and it does so much for the rest of the players on the court. Um, that he's a huge asset, but then it's like if he's not hitting that three, then he's not quite a good enough post-up player. He's not quite a good enough offensive rebounder. He's not quite good enough at all those different things. Um, but I think it becomes more noticeable. Um, but again, that hasn't been a problem in the playoffs. He's been making threes. It opens up the rest of his game. He can do a little bit of everything. He can play make. He can crash the boards. Um, and he, he, I mean, he was a big problem for the Heat. Um, so it, it, you know, it'll be interesting to see you know if you can maintain that against other teams. It's going to be. Uh, fascinating to see how the teams defend them and if they can take make Simmons and Embiid more uncomfortable. And because um, the Heat did a good job in Game Two of kind of switching up their coverage um, and, and putting more pressure on Simmons to prevent him from being able to see guys and kind of uh, find shooters and everything like that. Um, you had Embiid to the mix, and that kind of just I mean that messes everything up because he's you know a fantastic offensive play, fantastic defensive player, um, and they can kind of run a lot of offense through him and not other Simmons. Um, Another thing about Reddick, by the way, that I love about him, you know, we said that he hasn't been shooting threes well this, in the playoffs. He's still averaging just under 20 points per game, I think. I've um, been shooting like yeah. 45% from the field or something like that. At least he was heading into game five. 
Um, and he's taking a lot though, of shots. His usage rate yeah. is really high. And the thing I love about Reddick too is that he is one of the league leaders in scoring off the screens, um, and he's just constantly moving. So it's one of those things where it's like if he's missed all five of his three-point attempts, he's still going to run around screens and come off of them looking to shoot. Um, and those things make a huge difference at the end of the game because if he's doing that, the defense still has to key on him because he's a fantastic three-point shooter. Even if even he's, he's missed like five in a row, he might make that next one when they need to do it most. Um, and that attention opens up driving lanes to like Embiid and Simmons. So it's one of those things yeah. like hit the gravity provides. It's about gravity so much with these shooters, but it, I mean, we do it for a reason. Uh, these guys so, like so valuable for these teams. Um, and it's why going into the season, I wrote an article that was like, even though he's making like $25 million a season, which is absolutely insane for a player of his caliber, he's worth every cent of that contract to the 76 because of the value his shooting provides. Yeah. And it's also one of those things where I think, uh, our biggest concern with the Sixers was how they play down the stretch in close games because they don't really have a if Embiid I mean it's basically Embiid but you still have Redick to come off screens but you don't really have like that go-to score on the perimeter um, when things get tight and that's kind of why Markel Fultz is so interesting long term for them is like yeah. I think he's the uh, that's the plan is like you hope that if he gets everything right, he's the guy you can turn to in the Donovan Mitchell type situations and the Westbrooks and that kind of thing where or James Harden, those kind of situations where um, it's not all on Ben Simmons to drive and kick and or J.J. Wright to get off, open off some screens or Joel Embiid to try and bully his way into uh, drawing fouls or whatever. Yeah. Um, I think it's going to be really interesting to see how he develops, especially how they use him down the stretch of close games. But that's at least a year from now. So <laughs> who knows yeah. uh, where that goes? But Bellinelli has kind of filled that void this year. Like Bellinelli is um, taking a lot of clutch shots for them and he's hitting them. And he seems like that uh, him and Ilyasova and Sarge too, for that matter. Like he's not afraid either. Like none of these guys are afraid to jack up shots yeah. in tight uh, coverage in close games. So, um, yeah, I, I've enjoyed it. Who do you think is their biggest challenge to get out of these? Is it the Cavs or is it my Washington Wizards who are <laughs> Eastern Conference Finals bound? That, that's the crazy thing about this is I just, I, I have no idea. Um, I, I think even if, I mean, even if like the Pacers win tonight's game, it's like I'm not, I'm not going to bet against LeBron until he gives me a reason to. Yeah. Um, so, you know, even if they play against the 76ers, even if the 76ers are playing better than them right now and look like the most dominant team, um, I mean, in theory, I think the 76 has given them a lot of problems. Like, you know, the Pacers have defended LeBron pretty well, which is saying something because he's averaging, I don't know, 30 points and triple-double, which is absolutely insane, but that's LeBron. Yeah. Um, but, you know, they don't have someone like Embiid in the paint, and that could make things a little bit more difficult, um, especially if he's not getting help from, from the supporting cast. Um, so I'm, I'm rolling with LeBron, so he gives me a reason not to. Um, I can't imagine the Celtics would be able to be the 76ers. They're a really scrappy team. They're so well-coached. I just don't know how much longer they can kind of carry this on. Um, this Bucks team is kind of a mess, so it's like it 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 sort of plays into the hand. Even though I think the Bucks should win the series because uh, they have Giannis and everything, and Chris Middleton has been playing fantastic. Um, and then you have, you have the Wizards and the Raptors, which everyone comes out of that. It's just that's the thing. It's just such a mess right now. And the Seventy Sixers do legitimately look like the best team in the Eastern Conference. Um, but it just it it just seems so weird to buy into this team right now and be like, yeah. The 76 is the best team Eastern Conference ever going to the NBA Finals this year. Like it just sounds, even though that's actually possible, um, it just it, it's so hard to 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 believe to me. I guess that's fair, but that's why you should always trust 
Brian Calangelo and the Calangelo family. They did a great job acquiring assets and putting this all together. So shout out to the Calangelos for a job well done. Um, yeah, I just, uh, we'll see what happens. So you wrote about Mitchell as well this week and he's been awesome and he's been crazy. And it's uh, a lot of talk has kind of centered on the Rubio Westbrook stuff, which has been ridiculous and fun. And Mitt Romney's out here getting customized jerseys and trolling Westbrook. And it's, what a weird series. Very heated, but it's a good playoff series where both teams are um, just really emotional and uh, just two really good teams and one really desperate team and one team that's just kind of young and scrappy. And the not-supposed-to-be-here team is the Jazz, where it's like mm-hmm. um, I've seen people talk about where the Thunder, it seems like they really didn't think that the Jazz could actually beat them in a seven-game series, but uh, it's 3-1 and it's not looking great. And it could be closed out tonight as we're recording, but um. Yeah, I just Donovan Mitchell, awesome. And like, who is your like closest comparison? I don't know if you like doing comparisons, but like when you watch him and you do tape study on him, who does he remind you most of? Um, this is probably sounding ridiculous because of how good both these players are. But he, the way he drives, he kind of has a little Dwayne Wade in it to me. Like the way yeah. he navigates his way around teams, the way he like Euro steps around people, he's kind of got that in his game. Um, but the way that he shoots, the way he pulls up off pick and rolls kind of makes me, like, it gives me, like, Damian Lillard vibes. So I think he's kind of like a Lillard-Wade hybrid, um, which, again, mm. is insane because both those guys are so good. Um, and we have no idea if Donovan Mitchell is going to be as good as one of them. Um, I think he will be. I think he's a legitimate, you know, I think he's going to be an all-star. Um, he's clearly comfortable being the number one option on a guy, uh, number one option on a team. And he's already carrying this team in the way that he has as a rookie. So who knows what's coming, coming in the future. Um, but I, I think that, that those are kind of the guys that I see with him. Um, do you, do you feel, do you think that's fair? Do you see anyone else with him? Or? Yeah. I mean, and he also, but he defends too. He works hard on both ends. And I think he went to a situation that really helped him in that regard where like Lillard and Wade are, I, I don't think are the defenders that Mitchell is. And I, I don't know. I, I think it's fascinating to see how good he's been. And I wonder if it's just being, he went to the perfect organization for him because they value defense as much as they do. And I mean, they like uh, go bear having go bear behind you is nice. Having playing with Ricky Rubio has been, I think really good for him, which I thought was coming into the year, kind of an odd fit. And I wasn't really sure how that was all going to work out because there was the rumors that like Rubio went there because he wanted to play with Hayward and all that kind of stuff. But it's really worked out. And I'm kind of surprised that those two can have, played as well together because when you talk about Lillard and Wade those are guys who really need the ball in their hands a lot and they're playmakers and things like that and Rubio obviously does and they've just made it work and um it's been fascinating I did you expect the two of them to be this good together and mesh this well no I didn't I I I mean I I think I can't remember now this could just be me thinking, watching the Jazz and thinking they're much better than they are. I think I picked the Jazz to make the playoffs, or at least be on just on the outside to make the playoffs this season. Um, so I yeah. thought they, I, but that was mainly because I believed in Rudy Gobert and their defense and kind of that being enough to propel them, uh, which is funny now because if they didn't have Donovan Mitchell, there's no way they're making the playoffs. And we had no idea how good he was going to be. Um, but no, I mean, it, it was just, it, 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 it kind of was set up to be a weird season for the Jazz when you think of all the new guys they added. Um, and just so many different question marks and things like that, that I didn't really expect them to fit in together. Um, I mean, even like halfway through the season, I mean, I think it was like, was it middle of January or end of January? They were on, they were still in the 500. Um, and then they, yeah. they, then they went on that huge win streak. Uh, after all star break, they were obviously the best team in the NBA, uh, at least by net rating and everything like that. Um, and that pushed them into the playoffs and everything. Um, 
so I mean, even halfway through the season, it didn't kind of look like everything was kind of going to plan, but they fit in well. Um, but they hit their stride at the right point. Um, and I think the nice thing with Mitchell too is that um, he's been he's been born into a great situation. He's a very versatile player. He can play on and off the ball. Um, but when you talk about like the weight comparison, the little comparison, the difference between him is like he can play shooting guard, which little doesn't really do. Although he kind of can play off ball next to McCollum, but he's much more of a ball dominant player. Yeah. Um, and Wade is not the outside shooter that uh, Mitchell is, um, and he's still got a lot of room for improvement. He's the kind of guy like he need, he needs to improve when he gets to a point where he's um, an efficient pull up shooter, both from three point range and mid range. I think it's basically a wrap. Like that's that's one of the best scorers in the NBA because he's got pretty much everything else. He's just not quite efficient enough with those shots yet to be at that level. Um, but that's going to come, and he's proven that he can make those shots. Um, so I, I mean, I think a lot of it is you know he's a very versatile player and he's also willing to kind of play off of other players and, and he settled into a good role. Um, and I think that makes a huge difference. Yeah. And he just needs to watch a bunch of Kyle Lowry and Victor Lodipo tape for that to come together. Like those two, like Kyle Lowry can get set outrageously fast in those Puget threes and Victor Lodipo obviously races up the court and he's super fast and he's really good at that as well, where you just, um, if you look away, he'll already have uh, moved the ball up transition uh up the court and just has had another Puget three and both those two are superb at it and um yeah i mean mitchell who knows how good he'll be eventually but um this year it's still pretty insane for rookie to have this sort of effect on a team especially in the west and uh, it's pretty impressive who do you have rookie of the year him or simmons um i have simmons i i think okay all around um i think he, he's been the better player this season um, and again, that's not taking anything away from Mitchell. He's fantastic. I think any other year, he's, he's like hands down rookie of the year. Um, I just think Ben Simmons has a fly edge, and I'm that, uh, like that's that's all it comes down to. It's not, it, it you know, it's, we, we joked about it earlier, but it's one of those things that like people get so heated about the conversation, um, and they can both be like fantastic players who are going to be you know all stars and potentially superstars, um, but just one has a fly edge over the other season, and I think that's Simmons. What you're telling me is you really, really hate Donovan Mitchell. <laughs> well, that's what it seems like everyone kind of interprets when you pick one or the other. But um, I, I love them both. I really do. And it, they're so much fun. And the crazy thing is, like, they are both rookies. Yeah, Simmons is a rookie, even though he sat out last year and everything. Um, but the, the poise that they're showing in these playoffs, I mean, they're both playing, like, I mean, they're both playing way above their, their age. Um, they both look like veterans I mean, out there. You can there. even say that Simmons is playing like he's been in the league already for a year. Yeah, it's like he's been in the league a couple of years, huh? <laughs> <laughs> um, it's crazy though. I mean, they both just—they yeah. both just look so comfortable out there, um, and it's so unusual. And it's—it's going to be depressing next season when, um, you know, we get we get to the playoffs next season and no rookie is playing as well as as Simmons and Mitchell has this season. Uh, I think we've, it's kind of exceeded our expectations for everyone in the future, but. Um, it really is remarkable what they've both been able to do in the playoffs. I have Mitchell, and it's mostly because, and I think Simmons is the better player, and I think he's someone, like if every NBA GM had a choice, like outside of the Jazz, um, who they'd rather pick number one overall to build around from this past year, if like Simmons entered the draft this year at the same time or whatever, but I think most would say, almost all would say Simmons. And it's just because there's not many guys like him who's just like the triple double as just a rookie is just insane. And just what mm-hmm. he does. And it, I, it just, those guys are just so hard to find and he's just going to be a problem for a really long time. And Mitchell, 
Um, it's really good. But my whole thing with Mitchell is like, I think he does have a point. And but the way the rules work, I would you have to pick Simmons, I think, almost. But um I think the rule is stupid. I think they do the people who are annoyed that Simmons qualifies and that Embiid in, Embiid qualified and Blake Griffin qualified and so on and so forth. Um, it's fair. Like they are in an NBA locker room, they are getting an NBA diet nba conditioning and all that kind of stuff so they do have an edge so it's to pretend that it's the same situation for mitchell and simmons this season is uh not not completely honest so i i get it i i like the pettiness and i think um i would change the role and give it to mitchell yeah, but mitchell has like a couple years older than simmons isn't he so you could use that argument yeah. as well like, I, it's that's fair like, like like don't get me wrong i totally get the argument i, I really do but it's one of those things too. It's like Simmons is like the NBA season as a rookie. He's been a rookie this year. He's up for this award, and I think he's been the slightly better player. So it's just like, yeah, he's rookie of the year. You know what I mean? And also, right? who cares? Because yeah. Malcolm Brogdon was rookie of the year last year. It doesn't matter. None of the yeah. Michael Carter Williams was rookie of the year. It doesn't matter. People None of this about matters. Those pretty quickly, huh? This is <laughs> Oh man, yeah. What is it with Bucks point guards? Um, at some point, that uh, turn of this. Carter Williams was the Bucks point guard at some mm-hmm. point in the last two years, wasn't he? He's been on like 17 teams yeah. um, since leaving the Sixers, but I'm pretty sure he was there at some point. Um, without looking, where would you guess he is? I feel like... Mm, right like now? Last, I, yeah, I, was, he Char- was it Charlotte? Yeah, it was Charlotte. I know that just because oh I'm, I'm here. So I, I, I had a good dose of my Carter Williams this season. Oh, great. Um, another thing on the Jazz, well, this is, kind of, this is Jazz Thundery. Um, we haven't really talked about Andre Robertson as much. And I feel like we should because just he's if you just look at the numbers, he's incredibly valuable to the Thunder, even with his non shot. And it's just his defense. I wonder what the series would look like if they had had him playing 40 minutes a night on Mitchell and mm-hmm. how Mitchell would have reacted to someone like Robertson, someone long versatile is just an amazing defender who gets in players heads. Like we've seen in the last couple of seasons, like Robertson really goes at guys. And it's kind of like Rubio where there's just this edge to him, the way he plays. It's just, it's a good guy to have in the playoffs and um, they don't have him. And it turns out Corey Brewer is not Andre Robertson at this point in his career. So that's been a problem, but do you think that would have shifted the series enough to put it towards the thunder? Or do you think, he wouldn't have made that big of a difference. It's a tough one because I think I don't think the Thunder's problems are just Andre Robertson's injury. Um, yeah, he he is an incredibly valuable player for them. He's a, he's a difference maker on defense for them. Um, him being able to check the best guy on the team and then have Paul George just be a roamer and, and mess things up. Like they they were they were one of the best teams in the NBA when they were both together. Um, and I think yeah, the defense probably would be better in the series. Um, but that's still, you know, he's not solving any of their problems on offense, and they have serious problems on offense. Um, but, you know, maybe his him slowing down Mitchell a little bit more, maybe that makes the game a little bit more competitive, maybe they get another win at this point, um, they're not down 3-1. Like, that's totally possible. Um, I just don't think he solves all of their problems. Um, but again, that's not taking away anything from his value because he's incredibly valuable to them. Um, and he was one of the favorites to win uh, Defensive Player of the Year this year for a good reason. So um, you have that kind of guy on any team, he's definitely going to make a difference. It's just, you know, whether it's enough. Do you think the Jazz pose any real matchup problems for Houston? Should Houston sweat them at all? So I have a, assuming that that is the series that goes on, um, I have a piece Okay, we can out. go ahead and assume. I, I, like, okay. I think that's happening. <laughs> okay, well, so let's assume that. I have a, pre- I have a preview coming out for you. 
um, over the next couple of days, assuming, again, assuming those all fall into place. Um, I am very inter- interested to see um, whether or not the Jazz can continue to kind of play this level of defense. Um, one of the things I look at in the article um, is that the Jazz um, are basically, their, their defense is kind of built to take away the shot that the Rockets are built on. Um, so the Rockets led the NBA in three point attempts, corner threes, um, and they get a lot. They get a lot of shots at the basket. Um, the Jazz are basically the best team in the NBA at taking away corner threes, um, threes from the top of the arc, and they basically bait teams into shooting mid-range jump shots and shots in the paint, but ones that are outside the restricted area. Um, and teams on the season shot below 40% in both of those areas, mid-range and outside the paint, uh, outside the restricted area, paint. Um, and it kind of. I think the kind of the blueprint that they're going to use is the one of the, the same one that the Spurs used last season, which is basically um, take away the three point attempts or try to at least uh, make Harden shoot over length when he gets to the basket and kind of live with them taking mid range shots because we know the Rockets don't want to. Um, now, this Rockets team is very different from the one last year, mainly because they have Chris Paul, who's one of the best mid range scorers in the NBA. Um, and if they're going to mm. give him mid range jump shots, he's going to take those and he's going to make about 50% of them. Um, and that's probably enough. They also have guys who can play shooters who can play the four and the five, which is going to stretch Rudy Gobert out a little bit more than he's used to. And maybe that's, you know, just too much of them to handle. Um, so I think I can see it kind of going either way. That's probably a cop-out way to answer this question. Um, <laughs> I could see the Rockets. Just, I mean, the Rockets destroyed them in the regular season. Uh, the three of those games, I think, came before um, their big run and before they actually kind of turned their season around. Um, so it, it, it's going to be a fascinating case of like, you know, one of the, one of the best defensive teams in the NBA going against the best offense in the NBA, um, seeing if they can actually take away the kind of shots that the Warriors, the, the, the Rockets feast on and whether or not it's enough. Um, cause I don't know if they have enough offense to actually like kind of keep go toe to toe with the Rockets. Um, you know, Donovan Mitchell is fantastic and everything, but I, I, I just don't know. Like they can't afford to get into a shootout with the Rockets. Very few teams can um, so they're going to have to really rely on their defense. So it's just, um, I, 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 the, the real answer is I, I just don't know. I don't know if they do have enough firepower to actually win a series or anything like that, but I think they could be interesting. Who does Ricky Rubio end up pissing off more in the playoffs? Chris Paul or Russell Westbrook? Um, I, I think Russ. I think Russ because also the situation of the series is probably going to get to Russ more. Um, and that, you know, the Thunder are going to lose. Like, Ricky Rubio could piss Chris Paul off, but if the Rockets win in five games, like, he kind of gets the last laugh in there, do you know what I mean? Whereas I think the yeah. fact that the, 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 the Jazz are up 3-1 right now and Ricky Rubio has outplayed Russell Westbrook, like, that's, it's just, it's kicking him while he's down kind of thing. Um, so I'm going to go with Westbrook. Okay. Yeah, it, I don't think Westbrook really likes uh, Ricky Rubio. I've gotten that kind of um, vibe from him. Um what do you think the Heat should do with Hassan Whiteside? Because it there aren't many teams in the league that could really use Hassan Whiteside and his like I think he's earning like close to fifty million dollars over the next two years. Not great for a guy who's playing like fourteen minutes in the playoffs. And I do feel bad because um someone made the point that it kind of reminds them of the Hawks last year with Dwight Howard in the playoffs against the Wiz and just him um not playing crunch time and everything else, and that's what's happened to Whiteside is he was just unplayable in this series against the Sixers, but what are you going to do when Saric and Ilyasova are playing the five a lot and he can't go out on a beat and everything else like Whiteside, I get why he's frustrated and I get why these guys do get frustrated because um, they do, because it's not bad enough where it's like an Okafor situation. It's, it's not that 
it's um but at the same time in the playoffs it's just a different animal and he's you just can't win it, it like i trust spo enough to believe that he would play us on white side if he could play us on white side if he thought it he gave them the best chance to beat the sixers but i i do feel bad but i also don't know where he goes i still think if i really had to guess it's the lakers but um i don't know which team really needs us on white side right now yeah it's, it's a tough one um I, I I don't know what's gonna happen with him. Um, the the one thing that I'll be that I, I like I, I want to see what happens is that he he was pretty upset after the last game, and I'm not surprised. Um, but Dwayne Wade kind of said to him and responded to basically like, all right, like don't make excuses, like go to work. Um, and I think this is gonna be a huge summer for him in that regard because he's never gonna. I don't think he's ever gonna be the kind of guy who like develops a mid-range jump shot. He's probably not gonna shoot threes. Um, but there's little things that he can probably change to his game to be at least, a, you know, a more valuable version of what he is right now. Um, mm-hmm. And it's, uh, that's why I think this summer is going to be huge for him because it's kind of going to be that make or break. It's like, are you going to take the next step? Um, like, are you going to learn from this and kind of go forward and take the next step that you need to be to be more valuable? Or are you just going to kind of complain about it or be upset about it and not really move on? Um, and all of that's on him and how he wants to address it and everything like that. Because um, he, he is a tricky player because he's, he's more of a throwback center, even though he's a, you know, he can be a very impactful defender. Um, but he's a, he's a guy who wants to play with his back to the basket or in the paint. Um, can't really stretch the floor. Uh, he doesn't really want to extend to the three-point line to defend guys in pick and rolls and things like that. Um, and it has to have like kind of a perfect situation for him to play in. Um, and to your point, too, it's like the Sixers won a very good matchup for him. But on the other hand, there aren't many other teams that they could probably have played against in the first round um, where he would have been comfortable or, or you know, more effective because um, a lot of these teams kind of play the same way. So it's, it, is, it is certainly a difficult situation. Yeah. I He's not making it easier. He's not doing – like Howard obviously didn't do it um, the quote-unquote right way last year with his stuff, and they, the Hawks just had to eat a lot of money, and they had to do whatever they could to get him out of there, and they had to take in Miles Plumley's contract and all that. So um, – is it Miles? Which one? Maybe it was Mason. Which one's which? Miles? I think it was Miles. I think I got it right the first time. Yeah, yeah there's another right. Plumley. There's three Plumleys. Now. It's, it's confusing. Um, yeah, I just I don't know where he goes, but I guess I, I, it it's hard to see him just coming back. But at the same time, his contract's so bad that who's really going to take him? And man, I I really don't know. It's gonna be fascinating. That's a really interesting subplot. Is what Miami does because it's like. For some, he's just he's done it twice. Like he went after, like he was just openly criticizing his role and everything else twice in the playoffs. And I get that he's a competitor and everything else, but it's hard to see Pat Riley just being like, "Yeah, let's bring this guy back one more time." Yeah, I think he's. I, I, it's hard to tell with these players, but I think he he's quite an emotional guy when he plays on the court too. So you can kind of see with him it, in a lot of the games. He kind of just looked. He didn't look like himself. Like he didn't quite look like he was in a rhythm. Um, he missed some easy shots around the basket. He wasn't kind of playing with the same intensity defensively that he, he does a lot of the times, things like that. Um, and I think that gets to him. You know, he's, pro- he's probably in his head. Having to go up against Joel Embiid, who he's had deep with in the past, probably doesn't help, um, especially because Joel Embiid was fantastic in the series. Even though he didn't score that well or he wasn't the most efficient scorer in the first couple games, he got to the free throw line. He was um, insanely impactful defensively. Uh, and I'm sure, you know, just all those things kind of contribute and, and I'm sure they play a role. Um, but again, it's like, you know, he can, some of this is, I think in his control, um, based on how he, you know, how he comes back next season and things like that. Uh, cause it, it, 
he his contract isn't very tradable. You're right. I think he's getting paid like twenty five million dollars um each of the next two seasons. Um and he's, you know, already twenty eight years old. Uh so it's it's a tricky situation. Um but I I don't know. Who knows? <laughs> We're both just sounding demoralized about the it's, whole situation because it's, just, it's, it's just, just a, it's just a weird situation though. Like he's getting paid so much money, but it's a frustrating situation for him. But I also get it from the Heat perspective. Um, he's had problems in. The oh, I've got a deal. Things. Okay, go ahead. Uh, let's send him to Charlotte. Oh, Mitch no, Kupchak. Man. No man, you've already got this. one don't, bad deal in Dwight Howard. Do that, let's go ahead and me. do Luol Deng 2.0. Oh, let's get God. the Timothy Mozgov contract. Let's get the two bad contracts on the team. Let's get Howard and Whiteside. Double down. Oh my goodness. Hey, actually, yeah, I, I'd, I'd buy into that experiment. Anything for the Hornets right now, you know, they're not exactly got a lot of things going for them. So why not? Why not just go crazy? There you go. You're already in cap hell. Just yeah. keep adding money. Just keep adding. <laughs> just money. keep adding uh, really angry uh, senses who want the ball in the post and don't really want to play defense. What could go wrong? <laughs> yeah, no, it's a great idea. <laughs> oh, that's great. Um, last thing, and then we need to go. Um. How do you see the Eastern Conference Finals playing out between the Wizards and um, the Sixers? <laughs> the Wizards and the Sixers? Yep. You just, you're already moving the, the Wizards right through there. Oh, I am. The, the Wizards team. are... So, let's see what this... They were winning last time I checked before we started recording. Uh, are they down one? As long as they win game five, I'm good. Because um, if they they get out of this, I think they're beating the Cavs. Like, the Cavs, I don't think... Um, the Cavs are just, they're going to get through too, but oh God, it's 92 91 as we're recording. Uh, Toronto's up one. So after we're done, I guess we're going to be diving right back into some uh, primetime basketball. But anyway, um, yeah, I- am I crazy for still buying into the Wizards and thinking that they're going to escape? They're just, John Wall's been really good this series, and Bradley Beal was obviously awesome in game four. And I love the fact that they rallied after he got tossed, I mean, after he got a six foul in a ridiculous manner. And a lot of people are talking like, oh, this is a series changer. Now they're going to go down uh, 3-1, blah, blah, blah. But uh, John Wall stepped up and Mike Scott hit some big shots down the stretch. Kelly Oubre was incredible. Um, This team showed a lot of resiliency that I like. Ty Lawson's played really well for them, which is weird as a backup point guard. And uh, Mahimi's not an albatross. Mike Scott makes everything. Like, I just, I think, and my whole thing with the Wizards has always been that, like, their starting five has always just looked good. Statistically, it's good. Like, Gortat, Wall, Morris, Porter, and Beal, when you have those five out there, they're just really hard to beat. And they haven't had those guys out as much as they did last year because Wall was hurt for a lot of the year. But it seems like he's rounding into form and he's playing really well and Beal's figuring it out. And I don't know, man. I think the Wizards are still really good. It's just they have struggled to just put it all together and just get out of their own way. Yeah, the uh, the, the thing with John Wolf, he didn't really have a very good season. I know he was injured and everything like that. Uh, but one of the biggest things to me this season was over over a third of his shot attempts were two-point pull-ups, um, which yeah. has kind of been like his go-to shot, at least just a shot that he needs to make it a, a decent rate to kind of open up the rest of the game and be the force the driving force and the transition force that he is. Um, the problem is, I think last season he made about 40% of those, if I remember correctly. This season he made 31.2% of those, um, which is just an awful rate, and that affects his game tremendously. Um, this series, obviously much more sample size. He's up to nearly 50% on those shots, um, and they're contributing. They're, they're about a third of his shot attempts again. Um, so that, that's like the main stat that I look at. 
Um, cause even though it's just John Wall, he is kind of the engine that drives them. Um, and if he's making those mid range pull-ups, it does do so much for his game and for everyone else's game. Um, cause we know he's a fantastic passer and everything like that. Um, so it's just a question of whether or not, I mean, the thing is that they do have going for them every year is that John Wall and Bradley Beal have a history of second playoffs. Um, they both have their moments throughout the series. Um, and to your point, you know, their, their starting five is, has been fantastic every single year, basically. Um, and they always kind of seem like this team that just wants to make it. Like, they do not care about the, the regular season. They just want to get to the playoffs. They think they can kind of compete with anyone when they get there as long as they're healthy. Um, but I, I don't know. They're just It's it's kind of like the Sixers. I don't, I don't feel comfortable buying into them being like, yes, they're going to the NBA Finals. But the Wizards, I just don't quite feel comfortable enough to say, like, yes, they're going to be Ethan Commons finals um, just because of all the problems that they have and, you know, chemistry issues or not that's, you know, as bad as it looks sometimes and things like that. Um, I just don't know. I'm, I'm quite ready to buy in, even if they beat this Raptors team um, because the Raptors haven't quite been as good as they were in the regular season, everything like that. Um, and I still think if LeBron makes it through the next round, uh, I'm not betting against LeBron. So for me, it's just, it's again, it's kind of like just the shrug emoji. Like, I just don't know what to do right now. I don't know what to think. Um, cause there's just so many different possibilities. Um, cause again, the only team that looks like they kind of have their head screwed on right now is the 76. So that's fair. Um, all right, man. Well, I think we covered everything. This was, uh, this was great. I'm, I'm glad. See, this is what happens when I go on vacation for, for like 10 days. I'm recharged. I feel good. I timed it out well. Cause I was like, I missed I missed that that amazing uh, Timberwolves Nuggets game at the end of the season, the last game of the season, which I was kind of mm-hmm. upset about. But I planned it well because I was like, you know what, I'm going to take a few days off. I'm going to miss the end of the regular season, but I'm going to come into the playoffs feeling good because um, the season's long, man. It's a long season. Yep. Those 82 games and then it's a quick turnaround to the playoffs. The playoffs is like two months, then you go to the finals. It's a lot. Um, so I think that's probably going to be my plan now. I'm going to take a little vacation before the playoffs three years just to just to give me that boost I need. It's a good idea. Um, I think you should do that, man. Um, all right, Scott. Well, I appreciate you taking the time. As always, we can find you on Twitter at Crab Dribbles. We can read you at the Step Back and Sporting News, where you can find those pieces that we talked about being in the podcast. And uh, check them out there and follow them and all that good stuff and read his great work. Appreciate it, man. Thanks so much. All right, on the line right now, one of my favorite NFL writers, it's Sam Monson of Pro Football Focus. Sam, good evening. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Pretty good. Are you exhausted from the draft yet? No, not yet. It's uh it's going to get exhausted in the next few days though. Now that once it actually once it actually kicks off and we've got to uh, we've got to run with it live. Well, at least the number 1 pick settled and everybody knows who's going number 1 overall. That's the important thing I think at this point. Yeah, it's about the only. I mean, this draft is this draft is kind of chaotic. I think for the first time in a while, a lot of the a lot of the first round is completely up in the air. Yeah, it uh, it's gonna be fun. I hope we get some cool trades. I hope the Cardinals and Bills are active. I'll ask. I have some questions about them in a little bit. But uh, I want to first ask you though, because I might forget this question. What is one thing about Chris Collinsworth that you've learned working at PFF that uh, a lot of people may not know? Uh, wow, that's a, that's a tough one. Um, I don't know that there's an awful lot, uh, there's an awful lot 
you know, secret about the guy. I think he is kind of the guy that he comes across as being on Sunday Night Football. I think really the thing that we're learning working with him is just how much prep work and just how much information gets funneled to him in order to do Sunday Night Football. I mm. think we we all think of particularly color commentary as just a gig that you kind of roll up and 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 talk. You You, you know, you just say what comes into your mind and, and that's really it. But there's so much information. Leave Rex um, out of this. <laughs> there's so much information presented in front of him on his kind of computer. There's so much prep that gets uh, sent his way from PFF and from, from other places as well. Just the volume of information that's, that he has to work with for these shows is kind of impressive. Okay. I like it. Um, all right. Uh, actually, you know, what? I have one more question about your pa- your your video partner, podcast partner. You're all over the place with him. Steve Palazzolo. Who do you think spends more time on their hair, Palazzolo or Mike Renner? Uh, Renner definitely spends more time on his hair. Okay. Uh, Steve's Steve's hair appears to be more of a construction <laughs> effort. It's very very dependent on moose, and if if he doesn't have the moose, things go bad in a hurry. Uh, but Mike definitely spends more time doing various things to his hair. Okay, good to know. These are all great things. I would have th- that would have been my bet, but that's uh, good to know. Um, so when you're going through your PFF offseason grades and you're going from team to team and things like that, who, when you were just looking at the lay of land, what they need for in the draft, free agency, and all that kind of stuff, who did you come across? Like one team in the NFC and one team in the AFC that kind of struck you as like, oh man, they have a lot of holes. Oh, there's there's a few teams I think that are like that. I think the Indianapolis Colts have got an awful lot of holes to fill on their roster. They they would be the team in the AFC, and depending on how um, depending on how the Andrew Luck deal falls, they may still have a, a hole of quarterback as well, which would be the yeah. the biggest problem for them because they may not even know that until until the season rolls around. Andrew Luck's not not ready to go again. We're we're going to find out about that. Um, when that happens, I think the Cardinals are definitely a team with a lot of holes. Um, there's a, there's a few teams in the NFC I think that have got pretty ugly looking rosters. The Cardinals would be one, even with some of the additions they made. The Giants I think still have plenty of holes to deal with, um, and there's a couple of teams I think on that side. The Cardinals are interesting because the Colts make a lot of sense. Like they're still rebounding. Chris Ballard's gonna he just traded down. He's acquiring more picks. Obviously, they have a lot of stuff they have to do. But like the Cardinals were the oldest team in football just like two years ago. Actually, was it last year or two years ago? Um, but this was an older roster and they made a lot of changes. They let Calais Campbell go, Tyron Matthew go. They're they're getting younger, but like you said, they they have a lot of holes, but yet now that you, you get the rumors of them potentially trading up for Josh Rosen and like what it will take for them to trade up for a quarterback. Maybe they're a team that shouldn't do it because they have too many holes in their roster and they just need to replenish everything else before they go to the quarterback route. But um, yeah, I mean, I still like Sam Bradford and uh, if he stays healthy, which I know is kind of ridiculous at this point, but when he is healthy, he is good. And maybe you should just roll it out and not trade up for a quarterback this year and use those picks to kind of fix uh, and uh, replenish a lot of those holes. I, I hadn't really thought about the Cardinals in that sense. Yeah, I mean, Sam Bradford, I agree with you. I think he is a very good quarterback. I think he's actually better than people give him credit for when he is healthy, um, particularly with the Vikings. Some of the mm-hmm. games he played when before he got injured were spectacular. Even just 
this year, week one against the Saints, he was, he was incredible. Yeah. Then came out of that game, ended up injured, and that essentially shut him down for the whole year. The problem is with Bradford is, I mean, injuries have always blighted his career, but at this point, they've been so bad and so consistent that you really just can't trust that he's going to be there for any extended period of time. I think that's why they kind of double-dipped in free agency and signed Mike Lennon as well as an insurance policy for that happening. And regardless of those two guys, they know they need a, f- a future franchise quarterback as well. Um, I-, I don't know if they need to do it this year. I think it's a good year to be doing it because this is a strong quarterback class, and I don't think next year is going to be. Um, and it's one of those things where for any other position, I would say moving a significant distance up in the draft is usually not worth it. But quarterback is probably the one position where it is. If you don't have a quarterback, almost nothing else matters. And conversely, if you do have a quarterback, it's that guy can paper over almost any cracks on your roster. Well, it's going to be interesting to see what they do, especially with Bruce Arians talking up Lamar Jackson and everything else, uh, but now the Rose and stuff. I don't know, but I think it's a good situation. It seems like Steve Wilkes is all the makings of like a great first-time head coach, and I like the Mike McCoy hire as offensive coordinator. Felt like he didn't get a great deal in Denver um, with their quarterback situation and everything else. But um, So one thing I, I definitely have loved in your off-season grades has just been like I, the video, which I encourage everyone to check out on Pro Football Focus's YouTube page, uh, talking about Josh Allen, which fantastic because it's it's not been a great night uh, if you're Josh Allen and you're checking your Twitter account, but in um, Josh Allen, man, you're, you're not a fan, and you compared him kind of to Christian Hackenberg, who you uh, said was undraftable a couple years ago, and he went in the second round with the Jets, which is also why, like, if I'm a Jets fan, I'm kind of nervous about this same front office drafting another quarterback um, and what they're going to do there and Jeremy Bates and all that kind of stuff. But um, why do you, outside of like the obvious things, what are uh, some major red flags for Josh Allen? And why are you so certain that Baker Mayfield's the best uh, quarterback in this draft? Yeah. Well, the first thing is we kind of need to remind people of what comparing two things means. Uh, because I've compared Josh Allen to Christian Hackenberg. I've also compared him to Carson Wentz and Cam Newton. Yeah. You know, you can compare a guy to anything because it's, it's about defining similarities and differences. And I, what I've compared him to Hackenberg is, I think Josh Allen is what, Hack, what people said Christian Hackenberg was, which is this big collection of tools, um, quarterback components, that were just unfinished and you had to put it all together. But if you did that, you were fine. You had the quarterback there. Hackenberg didn't even have the tools. There was just nothing to work with. He was a bad player in college and he didn't have any of the tools to work with. Allen was a bad player in college, at least in 2017, but at least those tools are there to work with. He does have a generationally strong arm. He has probably the strongest arm to come along since Cam Newton, certainly, and maybe even beyond that. So, he has an absolute howitzer for an arm. He does make some spectacular plays. Again, Hackenberg never really had that. He is a big, strong athlete. Again, bigger, stronger, faster than Hackenberg. He has all the things Hackenberg didn't have going for him. Um, but where they do, where they are similar is that they're both inaccurate quarterbacks. Yeah. I think Josh Allen is more accurate than Hackenberg was, but then Hackenberg was catastrophically inaccurate. Um, Josh Allen's inaccuracy is an issue. And yes, it's 
um, warped a little bit by the competition and by the offense he played in that didn't give him a huge amount of easy throws to work with and all this kind of stuff. But he is fundamentally an inaccurate quarterback. Even if you limit the sample size to short passes, passes behind the line of scrimmage, you, you, you take out all the noise of things that are changing those numbers, and he's still inaccurate. Uh, that's just a part of his game. But that doesn't mean he can't be successful. There are quarterbacks that are like that that have been successful, and that's why I've compared him to Carson Wentz and to Cam Newton, because those are two guys, they are two of the three most inaccurate quarterbacks in the league last season. The third guy was Deshaun Kaiser. But unlike Kaiser, those two guys make the big plays to offset the bad. So Carson Wentz was money on third down, and he made a huge amount of big plays deep down the field. So it didn't matter that on a big-picture level, he was more inaccurate than almost any quarterback in the NFL. And that's what Josh Allen needs to be. He needs to make those big plays. He needs to be really good on third down. He is really good in the red zones uh, so far from what we've seen. So he just needs to establish himself as good enough at the hard stuff so that the the fact that he isn't great at the easy stuff is not that big a problem. Um, The problem is we just haven't seen evidence that he's going to do that. So at the moment, you're dealing with this incredibly raw prospect who has some tools to work with, but it is a complete and total gamble that you're going to be able to get anything better from him than we've seen so far in college. And for us, that isn't worth a first-round pick, let alone a top-five pick, which is where he could end up going. Um, Baker Mayfield is almost the opposite. He is a guy whose college tape is spectacular. He has got the top two single-season grades we've ever given a quarterback, and his third season is in the top seven. So he's got two seasons that are better than anything we saw from Goff, from Carson Wentz, from uh, Marcus Mariota, from any of those guys that have come out in the past few seasons. Mayfield is number one. And what's funny is that almost everybody acknowledges that his play is spectacular. The only question is, how much do you, um, how much do you take off that because he played in the Big 12, where defense is kind of optional, and he played in an offense where 20% of his pass attempts were screens, and he was throwing to a lot of NFL receivers and all this kind of stuff it's it's like mayfield is fantastic but we have to work out what percentage less fantastic he is because of these beneficial situations well if he goes to cleveland that's perfect for him because you have duke johnson right there for all the screens and everything else yeah and he's got you know a really good looking receiving core all of a sudden there and that offensive line is a pretty good spot as well I mean, the bottom line is I just don't think that's going to matter that much. You know, he is a guy who is, as much as the situation was fantastic in Oklahoma, he also went through the Texas Tech. He's he's come in as a walk-on twice and won starting jobs and been fantastic in two different situations. I just think whatever whatever happens, he's going to come onto, onto the NFL scene and translate. I think that play is going to is going to materialize. There's almost no way that you can slice our numbers where Baker Mayfield isn't the best guy by a distance, whether it's passer rating from a clean pocket, and that's what our analytics guys are telling us is the most translatable aspect of quarterback play. When you don't, when you have them in the best situation, that's logically the stuff that's easiest to replicate. And when you're looking at the, the things that translate, it's the guys that are spectacular from a clean pocket um, are also good at the next level when they're from a clean pocket. But 
even under pressure, Mayfield is by far the best guy under pressure. So no matter what way you look at it, Mayfield's numbers, his tape is just so much better than everybody else. And we don't think that the perceived negatives about how much easier his job was than guys like Josh Allen is enough to bridge that gap. Would you bet on Andy Dalton having a bounce back year with the full season of Bill Lazor? Um, I, it kind of depends what bounce back year is for Andy Dalton. I think he is a quarterback that is middle of the pack and he bounces around sort of, you know, 13th best quarterback to 20th best quarterback. And I think he's always been in that, um, that block in the middle. And then you just get his seasons kind of depend on the supporting cast around him. You know, his Mm -hmm. best season came when they had AJ green, they had the healthy Tyler Eifert for once. Um, and that supporting cast in Cincinnati was one of the best we'd seen. I don't think he was actually that bad last season. Um, but it was a, a step down from that great 2015 season. But I think, you know, he's, he's in the same kind of ballpark of where he's always been. Really, he just had that one season that was a bit of an outlier, and that was almost all down to the, the players around him. Are you at all worried about the fit of Kirk Cousins in Minnesota and the expectations surrounding his arrival? Uh, no, I think it's a good fit. Um, I think it's a good contract for both sides. It was an inter- it was a really interesting deal. It was potentially paradigm shifting for free agents in the mm-hmm. NFL. I'd always thought that, I said a few years ago when Andrew Luck's contract was going to come up, that the next quarterback who was going to, uh, who needed his deal being redone should shoot for a 100% fully guaranteed contract because quarterbacks in today's NFL, franchise quarterbacks, just have an absolutely unlimited amount of leverage. You cannot let those guys walk out the door. Therefore, you will give them whatever they want. And if what they want is a 100% guaranteed contract, I think those are the guys that could make it happen. And that's what, uh, that's what happened with Cousins. Instead of shooting for a $30-plus million a season deal over six years, he said, okay, we'll do it over three years, and I want all of it guaranteed. We'll do $28 million. It's easier in your cap situation, but all of it has to be guaranteed. Plus, that gives me the benefit of hitting free agency again, potentially, in three years' time. So I think they, or he gets that out of it, but on the Vikings side of things, um, they get a guy for a much more reasonable cap figure than they could potentially have had to outlay. So that means they can keep that roster in good shape around him and put him in a good uh, situation to succeed. I think it is big money for a guy who's probably never going to be as good as, you know, the best paid quarterback in the league, but he is, he should give them at least what they got from Case Keenum a year ago. And he will do that in a slightly different way. And that he's a bit more of a high variance quarterback. He's going to give you more big plays and he's probably going to give you more bad plays as well. But I think overall, that's probably a good thing. That high variance gives you the upside to, um, you know, win a shootout in the playoffs at the worst possible time when things are going badly in a way a more conservative quarterback can't necessarily do. Do you think the Falcons should have fired Steve Sarkeesian after last year? It was definitely a rough year of um, play calling. I think, you know, it's, this is a season that's going to be make or break there. I think there was some very ugly stuff throughout that season, but I I don't hate giving him one more shot at it. Okay. I mean, it was, I don't like the season ending with uh, opposing DBs uh, openly kind of mocking the play calls down the stretch. Not great. Um, Yeah. 
uh, I, I'm a little concerned about that. But uh, yeah, I thought there was an opening because you see this all the time where like the you hire an interesting QB coach that you kind of wonder when they're they're going to fire the OC and promote from within, like kind of what the Bengals did. And um, now they have Alex Van Pelt, who they stole away from the Packers, who, I mean, Lazer's got to be worried about that a little bit, I guess, because Aaron Rodgers loves Van Pelt, so he seems like a future OC and all that kind of stuff. But um, they hired, like, I think it was Greg Knapp as a quarterback's coach for, like, the 17th time in the Falcons history. So that was a little uninspiring. But uh, I was hoping that was what I was holding out hope. If you're not going to fire Sark, at least bring someone interesting in as a QB coach. So if they if the offense does sputter again to start next year, they have someone interesting waiting in place. Obviously, Kubiak's not available, but I love that rumor at the middle of last year. Um, that would have been fantastic. But um, I don't know what they do. But I'm still pretty nervous about year two of Sark with uh, Greg Knapp as uh, <laughs> QB coach. Yeah, I think to an extent they were a little bit unlucky last year. Um, you know, we all expected Matt Ryan to regress after the amazing season he had the year the year before, but it looked worse than it actually was. You know, he had way more interceptions than he had turnover-worthy plays by our numbers, which he was just the victim of some terrible bad luck. You know, he threw yeah, that what was it the the, the butt pick. He threw yeah. a ball that hit his receiver in the hands, ended up being picked off because it landed on Marshawn Lattimore's backside. That was the kind of thing that was happening to Matt Ryan last year. He was just getting passes that were actually well-thrown balls picked off. You just had to watch them to kind of figure out what was going on there. It was pretty crazy. I mean, the Falcons also got really lucky. Like, that Lions game was insane. The way they won that, the runoff was... Oh, what a moment. Um, A couple of last things I want to say before we get out of here. Um, Question. So there's been a lot of talk about John Gruden and his comments, and it seems like he's just having fun with the media at this point, but how like are people overreacting to the Raiders off season or are you pretty concerned about the direction they're heading? Um, a bit of both. I think the, the comments are blown out of proportion a little bit. Even when you read the full extent of what he says, most of the time it's, it's fine. It's just, there's a line in there. that sounds a little bit quirky. You know, he talked about, um, analytics and then launched into how they have a full department of those guys and those guys are telling him plenty of stuff and all this kind of stuff. And the Raiders are using plenty of analytics and they've got a lot of smart guys in that building. Um, so I, I don't think that's a concern at all. Some of the personnel moves they've made from that point on have been a little concerning. And, you know, I think there's, there's a lot of boomer bust potential on that roster. If guys like Jordy Nelson do get back to being, um, as good as we've seen him in the past, obviously that's a fantastic move. But if they jumped on the Jordy Nelson train just uh, as it goes on the downslope of his career, that could end up being an ugly move. And they, they've made a few of those types of moves. Yeah, it should be interesting because I think the AFC West is just like wide open. If the Chargers don't do it this year, I'm giving up all my Charger stock. I, I can't wait for them any longer. They just have too much talent. They should be, they should be a lot better than they are. This is the year. It feels like great. Right? Yeah, but it feels like that every year with the Chargers. <laughs> it's true. It's they have that. so much talent. <laughs> uh, I don't know. They frustrate me. Um, Bills or Cards? Who do you think should be more active in trading up for a quarterback? I think the Bills have to. Um, okay. The AJ McCarron, I don't think is any kind of lie. He's not even a short-term option, let alone a long-term option. They set their stall out when they traded away Tyrod Taylor. The Bills desperately need a quarterback, and they have the ammunition to make it happen. I, I would be pretty surprised if they don't trade up aggressively in the draft looking for one somewhere in the top 10. Okay. It seems like Rosen's going to be either a Buffalo Bill 
or Arizona Cardinal. It seems like one of those teams, whoever trades up, is going to be going after Rosen because he seems like the most uh, likely fall guy. Um, last two things, and then we'll go. Uh, who is your favorite sleeper first round pick right now? Sleeper first round pick. Um, it's it's uh, it's very tough to know which guys the NFL is as high on as everybody else, and which guys, um, you know, you're you love, but the NFL is not going to be interested in until the second or third round. I think a guy like Rashad Penny is every is well worth the first round pick, the running back out of San Diego State. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if guys like Darius Geis are getting talked about in the first round, I think Penny is a better running back than, than Geis. Um, he's graded better in college. He has far more impressive numbers in, in several categories. Led the uh, the nation last year in broken tackles. Had I think the second highest breakaway percentage. One above Saquon Barkley. Uh, can be a, a complete back, a receiver, and a runner. Um, I doubt that he's going to go in the first round, but I think he could. He should if if that if the league is valuing running backs at that point. All right. Last thing. You did this great piece on Calvin Ridley that I loved about how he excels uh, with the speed and how good of a route runner he is and how he just knows how to get open and uses like this downfield pick to get open, which was incredible. Um, So he's a really smart player. But I was wondering, who is your favorite position to research and do a lot of tape study on? What position do you like learning more about and like different guys doing different things to kind of make it all work? Um, I don't really have a favorite position. Uh, we kind of changed it up a bit this year. The, typically what we do is we, between me and Steve and, and Mike Renner as well, we kind of divide out the positions to start with and we each get a couple of positions and we run through those to begin with and then we start, you know, cross-check and we start going back through each other's uh, stuff. And the last few years I've done a lot of wide receivers and a lot of cornerbacks this year I got more linebackers and I got running backs as well, so we kind of changed it up a bit. Um, I actually kind of enjoy all positions. There's none that I really hate. The only position that I really don't like scouting is safety hmm. um, because it's just such a disaster between <laughs> between the number the, the the number of good players that you actually find coming out of college being so few, and the fact that almost everybody is coming from a very specific defensive scheme um, and they're they're almost every college safety is almost extremely limited in exactly what they are they're you know they're a quarter safety who covers the slot or they're a strong box safety or they're strictly you know a deep off the ball guy there's just so few guys that do everything it's very tough to nail some of these guys down it can be a very frustrating position to scout especially because there's so few action plays for some of these guys as well uh, it's just a position that gets old pretty quickly. Huh. I would never have guessed that, but that's, that's really cool. I think that's a good way of ending this. Um, Sam, I appreciate you doing this. Um, we can find you on Twitter at PFF underscore Sam. We can read you at profootballfocus.com. We can watch you on the Pro Football Focus YouTube page, which you should all go check out because the offseason grades and the NFL uh, the uh, NFL draft uh, coverage has all been great. They're must-watches. And uh, Sam, good luck tomorrow. Don't uh, lose your head when Josh Allen goes number one overall to the Browns. Yeah, I'll uh, I'll try and keep it together. Thanks. (laughs) All right, Sam. And that'll do it for today's episode of the Chase Thomas Podcast. I just want to remind you guys, if you like today's episode and you are subscribed on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, I would really appreciate if you could take a second, leave the show a five-star rating and a review. If uh, you're not an Apple Podcast listener, remember you can find the show on Spotify, TuneIn Radio, SoundCloud, Stitcher, 
Google Play or wherever else you get your podcasts. Uh, be sure to check out chasethomaspodcast.com where you can access all of my previous episodes and also find all my writing. I'm writing there fairly often. And also follow me on Twitter at Chase underscore Thomas and like the Facebook page at facebook.com slash Chase Thomas Writer. Uh, thank you for your support and we'll be back with another episode very soon. Thanks, guys.